You have tuned into the Voice of Medicine, the medical podcast filled with remarkable stories, first-hand experience, important research, and valuable life lessons. Open your mind, relax, and enjoy. Dear listeners, welcome to another edition of The Voice of Medicine with me, Michael. My today's guest is Tim Eyrick. Tim is Chief Medical Officer of Crossroads Hospice and Palliative Care. He is an internationally recognized authority on hospice and palliative care. He advocates full transparency uh, in patients' care. Um, You might know him from the TED Talk that he did uh, with the name, What Can We Do to Die Well?, He urges doctors to emphasize overall quality of life while helping seriously ill patients um, approach end of life with dignity and compassion. Um, He's a very special person, and um, I'm happy that he took his time to uh, do the podcast with me today. Um, Palliative care is actually something that I personally am very invested in. Um, I believe that here in in, uh, our Western society, we have a very limited view of what... uh, should and could be the end of life. Um, For example, in Asia, the end of life is regarded to be a peak of uh, our lifetime, and there is a high level of respect and dignity for all those people entering this phase of life. And I'm very uh, much looking forward to the topics that Tim and I are going to get to. You know, among uh, others, we will talk about assisted suicide. We're going to talk about the differences between the uh, palliative care in the U.S. and uh, partially in Switzerland or in Europe. I'm very interested in his point of view um, about certain uh, uh, mental uh, mindset stuff, such as uh, hope, for example. I guess anything regarding terminally ill patients might be considered a taboo. Um, and if it's so, I hope that Tim and I are going to break some taboos today, bringing some new ideas um, into healthcare that are not so familiar with palliative care in comparison, for example, to the UK, where there is a tradition of over maybe 30, 40 years of, um, of this specialty in medicine. Tim, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Tim, um, as I already told you, I'm not very structured, so I'm just gonna, uh, you know, start with with the first thing that that um, you know comes up to my mind, and is, you know, generally the medical approach or the care is curative, right? And in your line of work, so palliative care, uh, the cure is not possible. And the question that probably many people ask is, so what's the role of medicine, or what's the role of doctors for people who are terminally ill? That's a fabulous question. Um... I would offer at the onset that when we look at the advancing illness population, uh, a majority of things are not curable. I mean, from the common cold to, you know, many, many more caustic uh, entities. And so I think the role of medicine, it needs to be as translators and guides through a health journey, if you will, uh, to, to help people understand the, the realities of whatever disease or diseases they're dealing with, um, to offer absolute transparency and true informed consent. You know, you lead with the truth and then ask, what is sacred to you as an individual? And so what is sacred guides how we live our lives. And that doesn't change if you have metastatic cancer or not. But the things that we want to accomplish over a particular time period may take a different priority based on what that time period is. So 
if we're dealing with advancing illness, uh, as a palliative physician, my role is first and foremost to care. It's to tell the truth. It's to advocate for what is most sacred to that individual and then try to align care options with that. That's juxtaposed to what we see in almost every industrialized country in the world is we are trained as physicians to recognize disease and debility and then to do something to that disease and debility. It is regardless, more often than not, of, of the human being in total. If we see an increase in disease or debility, we do more to that. And it really follows a linear algorithm. I was on a plane yesterday and, and met a gal who just lost her father to metastatic pancreatic cancer. And she was sharing the, the grief and, and the difficulty in understanding why the doctors and I'll say the healthcare system continued to do things to him even as he declined, even as the quality of his life suffered, even as he began to question what is the efficacy of this? Why are we doing this? And she said, I felt as though we didn't have a choice. And at the end of the day, when they came in days before he died and said, there's nothing else we can do for you. Uh, she said, we felt really abandoned. Mm -hmm. uh, we were angry. <clears throat> and as we talked about it, she said it was, there are always things we can do for people. First, we can care. And to just say that there's no more clinical aggressive maneuvers we can make to that cancer, uh, that really precludes the bigger conversation of what I think we are supposed to do as physicians, and that's guide a narrative about living. Tim, you know, in all that you just said, there is so much um, that we can unpack, you know, piece by piece. So the sure. first thing that you, you, you um, emphasized was the care. And I know that one of your in one of your interviews, you said that the problem of healthcare these days is that it doesn't care. <laughs> so how would how does it look like when medicine really actually cares for the person? In um, in contrary to what you said, looking at a person with a certain condition um, as two entities, not being one, but as you said, the the medical staff basically looking as a patient, uh, just being the carrier of a certain. Uh, medical condition that they can now work on, operate, uh, change, kill, what, what not? Mm -hmm. Two points that would empower us um, to truly care, right? It's, it's to go beyond medicine, to transcend medicine. And, and within the paradigm of, of caring, science and medicine, you know, fits in there. I think to care, we have to start with what is never taught. And we have to start with what we as physicians uh, often deem as a failure uh, if we acknowledge or recognize it at all. And that is the absolute physiologic inevitability that, <clears throat> you know, people will die. We're all going to, regardless of cancer or dementia or, you know, a clean bill of health, if you will. That is an absolute inevitability. We are not taught that that exists. We are taught that if we don't overcome disease and debility, subtextually, we have failed. So imagine going into a career where, where subtextually you are set up for perpetual failure. Um, so we have to first recognize that death exists. We have to acknowledge it, recognize it. We have to accept it. And then we have to create a vernacular to actually talk openly and honestly about it. And that is a meter, a verse, a rhyme uh, about this absolute truth. 
And it's not the opposite of living, but it's the culmination of living. So if we start there, if you'll allow me, the narrative of how we engage with patients changes. Presently, we lead with fear. We say, do you want to die? Uh, and it's the wrong question because nobody and in all my years of practice raises their hand and says, yeah, I, I want to die. They may struggle with the quality of their life, giving different symptoms and, and debility and, you know, an overwhelming loss of, of control and the ability to do the things they love to do, but nobody wants to die. When we lead with fear, then we just rotely follow this aforementioned linear algorithm of doing things to a disease or debility. If we shift and we tell the truth and say, you have, so my mom, um, an example is my mom passed away two years ago this past Monday from a early onset, rapidly progressive dementia. Dementia is a progressive, irreversible, fatal disease. You will die because of this disease or a manifestation of something from it. We don't lead with that. And it's not meant to be mean or scary, but it's the absolute truth. And it's the individual's life. It's not me, the physician's life. So if we lead with the truth and then we step back and we say, okay, we can grieve, we can be angry, but it's right here on the table. And then we ask, how do you want to live given what we're dealing with? It shifts the narrative from fear, do you want to die, which is paralytic, to how do you want to live? And then as a provider, my engagement is acknowledging and honoring what those goals are. Truly a co-production, a whole person care that's clinical, social, psychologic, you know, the whole individual. And then we line up care options pursuant to that. If you don't want to go through the rigor of, say, chemotherapy and radiation and surgery, you want to be at home with your family, we can make that happen. So to your first question, you know, medicine doesn't ask what's important to the individual. So it precludes them from choice. It precludes them from crafting their own narrative, from writing the own, you know, their own chapters of, of their life. Um, and they end up being subjected to a system that doesn't acknowledge their existence as human beings. It just tries to overcome a disease or a process and beyond that specific disease or process, it's really trying to beat Mother Nature and prevent death, which is absolutely impossible. Uh, so it just sets us up for failure. So, so there needs to be an acknowledgement that there is a physiologic inevitability. And then the second thing is, as human beings, and I don't think it's unique to physicians, to come to that space and talk openly about it. We need to really embrace the algorithm of life, which is not a linear algorithm, but it's more of a Jackson Pollock painting. Right? It's ambiguous. It's all over. So when I come and I stand in front of a self-portrait of Rembrandt in Amsterdam at the Rembrandt Museum, whether it's September or May, sunny, rainy, and there's this tremendous beauty and there's value as far as the, the, the quality, the richness. He's a, a Renaissance master. The Italians describe his work as having chiatoscuro, you know, light out of darkness. But every time I stand there, it's static. It doesn't change. That to me over the years has become a metaphor for how we as physicians and healthcare systems in industrialized countries think about and potentiate the delivery of medicine, particularly for this population, right? The advancing ill and, and the terminal, terminally ill. But then when I'm at the MoMA, Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and I stand in front of a Jackson Pollock, same, same scenario, you know, September or May, sunny, rainy, 
two or three times during the same visit. It takes on a different meaning every time. It is anything but static. And that is a reflection of who I am at that moment. My experiences, my values, what is sacred to me is reflected back on me. That is the algorithm of life. I think as human beings, we fear ambiguity. We want to know exactly what's going to happen and when. Yeah, because ambiguity makes us very insecure. You know, suddenly there is things that we need to sort out, uh, go through. It's uh, the unknown was always scary. You know, just uh, speaking from evolutionary psychology perspective, that's uh, we want to know what's going on. Is some is that the something that is going to eat us? Is that the you know <laughs> the uh, primordial serpent, or are we okay and can be can be we happy? Yeah, uh, you you are absolutely correct, and I, and I challenge us not just as a profession but as a society only when we really embrace ambiguity and we just accept it for what it is, do we have the greatest sense of control over it? Because the more we try to control something literally that we can't control, the further from um, being content and at peace and and just being in that space, it it, it really takes us further from that. The chasm becomes too great um, to, to maneuver across. If we accept First, the absolute truth that there's going to be an end. But up until that point, everything is ambiguous. Uh, and we overlay what we know about disease, any disease, a particular trajectory, median life expectancies. Uh, we know that certain things are more likely to happen if you have dementia. Um, and we talk about those up front. What are we really doing? We're mitigating uh, that risk of being paralyzed by fear of the word you said, unknown. We're taking away the unknown. We know where we're all going to go. Let's talk about what we're dealing with, our expectations of what that disease may do. Let's ask what's sacred to the individual. And let's set up a care plan that is malleable to meet the needs in real time proactively. So now you can still be angry and grieve, but we diminish the fear because it's not unknown. Every patient I've ever had, I've asked several questions. And one is, are you scared? And inevitably they say, I'm not scared of dying, Doc. I find it interesting because that's not the question I've asked. If you ask me if I'm scared, I'll say spiders and snakes. And, and they say, Doc, I'm not scared of dying, but I'm scared of getting dead, which really is a time between now, diagnosis, and when we exhale our last breath. So we can remove that fear of the unknown and say, we're going to embrace ambiguity. These are the things that are likely to happen. Let's talk about what's sacred to you and set up a plan. And again, it goes back to shifting the narrative from mm -hmm. fear uh, to living your life. And you can still learn and love and grow with every breath. And, and so living a life, very, very different than just being alive. So I think those two things. I think in, in what you're saying, if I am you know, getting you correctly, is the pure um, truth that you give the patient that they know what's going to happen, what they have, um, you know, if there is any possibility to, to get better or not, because I, I guess this is also what they often ask you, is there a chance, how high is that, and so on. And um, this is probably what is not easy for a physician to deliver to a, to a patient, uh, um, you know, in, in a proper manner. But this truth probably liberates the people and gives them the autonomy 
to decide what's going to happen in the whatever time that they have left. This was interesting for me in regard of another topic. You know, it was the European court that actually proclaimed that the right to live, right, the, the, the human right to life um, also entails the, 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 the right to decide about the death of a person. This leads us to the topic of termination of life by own your will. I know, for example, here in Switzerland, um, it's allowed to do the assisted suicide. So mm -hmm. what if somebody is at a point where he does not want to prolong his life, um, but want to actually, you know, exit? Um, I don't know, how is it in USA? And how do you actually, as a physician, deal with this? So you tell patient the truth. And I think maybe the peak of this autonomy is to say, well, I thank you for telling me this. Um, and if I have the choice... I'd rather go out on my own terms. Let's put it this way. Right. Well, that's, a, that's a very, very good question and very timely. Um, that exact question was asked to me about a year ago when I was in Australia. And it is a very controversial topic. I mean, there's there's legal, uh, there's clinical issues, mm -hmm. there's all those ethical. I offer the, um, the notion of here is this little blue or red pill that would enable you uh, to... Uh, to, to, to bring your life to an end is where the conversation and, and where a lot of the questions uh, such that you just asked, that, that's, that's their genesis, is that, that kind of point where is this uh, a moral obligation, a responsibility? Is, is it our fiduciary responsibility? I think it's the wrong place to start. I think we need to back mm -hmm. and we need to understand why people come to that space. And, and it ties right back into what we were saying earlier. And, and I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of people throughout my career ask me that. Doc, do you have that pill that could allow me to just take my own life? Exploring the why is important. And unanimously, it comes down to fear of the unknown, ambiguity, an overwhelming sense of a loss of control because I don't know what's going to happen. And I see my ability to participate in things that I, I you know, like to do, ride a bicycle, go to the store, with the grandchildren, it, it's diminishing, and I don't know what lies ahead. That and or I have pain, and I don't understand it, and it's preventing me from living my fullest life, living what is sacred to me. So it's not about wanting to die. It's about wanting to alleviate the suffering, physical, psychological, emotional, of what they feel is an unknown journey and a loss of control. When we explore it from that perspective, and then we sit down, right? this is the full circle, and we, and we say, okay, let's talk about the realities of what's going on, the inevitability and the realities of your disease, and how we can proactively care plan if A, B, or C happen. We're gonna give you control where control is possible. Every time I've had that conversation, people say, I feel as though I can breathe again. Mm -hmm. Feel as though I have something to live for rather than I just want to die. And so the pill to me, the the question of physician-assisted suicide or other, it's about control. It's not about dying. It's about how do we get back to living? And if we frame it from that perspective and we go back and, and we hold each other accountable as physicians and a society to say that you haven't failed if you're elderly and you're ill. You haven't failed if you're not on the cover of GQ magazine, right? 
Lord knows I never will be, that this is a natural process of life and we have the opportunity to recreate, particularly in this country, what's been lost over the last hundred years, a true sense of community where I care for you and you care for me and I need you and you need me, not because I'm a physician and you've got cancer. We need each other because we're human beings and it's a tough road sometimes. So we need to recreate a true sense of community. We need to be truthful about what's going on. And that right there flips the conversation from, can you help me die? To, wow, these are the things I want to accomplish before that inevitability. And what I've found in my practice, when we take that approach, any disease, any age, a 105-year-old woman, and I've had five-year-old children, against the median life expectancy for that disease, when you lead with the truth, when you empower someone to choose, they live longer, whether they're engaged in aggressive therapeutic maneuvers or not. They live longer and are a heck of a lot happier. The quality of their life is enhanced because you're overcoming this overwhelming sense of ambiguity and loss of control. So I don't know if that gets to the answer that you were hoping for. It's a very complex topic. And, and um, when I was listening to you, I realized that the roots of uh, the control topic that you mentioned is it's, it's rooted deeply in, in, in the human community and the way that we communicate with each other, how we used to function maybe, you know, a few hundred years ago and how we function now. And if anything changed, so did people... Uh, the way you speak, when I imagine it, when when you speak like this to your patients, or if you know other people talk to each other this way, if they have the certain <laughs> condition, um, it's a very profound talk where I feel like uh, people have nothing to hide in front of each other. You know what I mean? They, it's uh, it's a very it's it's like talking soul to soul, and I don't want to sound too esoteric, but uh, well, there is you know the the. The curtain is down, you know, uh, there is nothing to hide, um, and it's it's the pure truth. I mean, we were talking about death and what's going to happen, and there's going to be probably pain and, and, you know, other things, other issues connected to it. So this is, why is it so profound, you know, when I'm listening to you explaining this to me? Um, nevertheless, one of the things when I uh, visited a lecture from uh, our professors here in uh, in Switzerland, Professor Barazio, he said a, a sentence which really stuck in my head is, without pain management, um, any kind of um, psychological or otherwise help is meaningless because the people are not going to be able to, to process anything if they are in severe pain. And now my question is, how far can the pain management go and is there a is there a um, moment where no uh, pain medicine um, actually helps anymore or it's just basically drugging the patient to, uh, you know, uh, unconsciousness so he doesn't feel it? <laughs> so, again, I appreciate that question, and I really appreciate the statement by that professor. P- pain is multifactorial. And so when I look at the human being and I, and I engage, I look at 50% is, is physical. So there can be this physical pain from, say, <clears throat> a cancer that has invaded your bone. But the other 50% is emotional, it's social, it's spiritual. You know, if, if you ascribe to a religion, it's religious. <clears throat> and so um, it is our responsibility, it's our duty, first of all, to understand that there's two halves. And at any point in one's life, I mean, cancer or no cancer, right? And until 
those two halves are one. Until we're a whole being as, as best as possible, uh, we're stagnant. We can't move forward. We can't live our lives, again, pursuant to whatever it is that's sacred to us. So in the individual that has a metastatic prostate cancer to the bone, you know, horrific disease, very, very painful from my experience as a clinician, we have to address from the physical aspect where that pain is coming. Let's empower the individual to understand right, first the truth of the disease, and we've had all that conversation, and, and here's what's causing the pain. And there's different types of pain. And so here's the opportunities we have to address that pain. To ask the individual, how are you? Tell me where this pain is, what did it prevent you from doing? What would be an acceptable, tolerable level of physical pain? Okay. Mm-hmm. And to work towards that in a very judicious, uh, mindful way. And so two things happen. One, uh, you're advocating for the patient. And, and that gives them a sense of control. And they're like, wow, all right, um, I'm not in this alone. Secondly, they have an understanding of what's causing that pain. And, and that mitigates some of the intensity of the pain right there, you know, without the use of a pharmacologic intervention. And then when you talk about the other 50% of the body and you identify these, these fears, these concerns, uh, what this physical pain and the disease process may be precluding the individual from thinking about and doing, right, you're bringing the whole person together and that can be as powerful as any opiate. Mm-hmm. You're acknowledging the being, the existence, the journey. And so in that setting, when you're addressing in total the human character, you uh, you can escalate pharmacologically if, if warranted uh, to a point where more often than not, I can count on one hand the, 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 the number of patients that we haven't been able to manage symptom-wise, pain-wise. You can get them to a point where they have a sense of control and they can live with the pain because we can't completely abate it. It's it's just impossible in most cases. So we say, let's get it to this area and let's have this ongoing conversation and adjust on a monthly, a weekly, a daily, and an hourly basis, right? So we have to be much more malleable as as how we think about care uh, and really step outside of this linear algorithm. Call me in two weeks. No, call me in two hours. You know, let's be accessible. Let's be a true community partner. So when we take that approach, uh, it's it's been very successful in mitigating paralytic pain, and so then people can come and be whole, and 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 move forward in their lives. So physical pain, psychological pain, emotional pain are are these roadblocks, right? So referencing the the professor. Uh, who said it really hinders our ability to live. Now, simply, my role is to educate, to translate, and try to alleviate these barriers to wholeness so that one can live their life however they want, given whatever they're dealing with. Is there a time where someone says, I just want not to feel the pain, and if it means I become more sedated or I am unconscious, so be it. Yeah, that. that is, is a legal and clinically viable option. Again, when you start way upstream and engage as we've been discussing, right? Uh, we're not afraid of going there if need be. We've uh, gone through a litany of options, opportunities, and alternatives. And if someone still says, you know what, this is where I need to be, um, then we can explore that. But it's not a snap decision. It's one that is over time, very intimate, very honest, and it includes all of those that are in this individual's care circle. So it could be their family, it could be their friends, uh, it's other colleagues, you know, to elevate, this is why we're doing it. If you'll allow me, we, we had a gentleman when I was 
his training. Um, and it was at Stanford University. And he had a widely metastatic prostate cancer. Just riddled his bones. And, and, and for many weeks, we were decreasing the pain just little by little and really working on the spiritual, emotional aspects. And there was a lot of, lot of psychological baggage, if you will. Baggage sounds negative, but that's not what was intended. There was just a lot of weight he was carrying in his non-physical being. And it, uh, it got to the point where an option was to do a, a, what's called a phenol ablation. So you inject phenol into the spinal cord and it, and it kills all the nerves. So you're going to be paralyzed. From a physiologic clinical perspective, you will have no sensation whatsoever. We're essentially cutting your spinal cord chemically. This conversation uh, persisted for several days with all the family members and the patient. And he said, you know what? That is the path I want to choose. And this was a gentleman that was on volumes of pain medication. And still his pain was, you know, a a 10 out of 10. Uh, He was not sedated. He was writhing. He was crying. So the decision was made to move forward with that procedure. Um, Procedure was performed. Patient came out of anesthesia and he had phantom limb pain. So you can take it to the extreme of essentially deadening part of the body. And unless we address the other half, the psychological, the social, the spiritual, you may still find you can't overcome it. And so again, uh, we have to look at the whole person. The next step was um, a conscious sedation, where we escalated medication so that cognitively uh, he was in sort of a quiescent state and, and uh, allowed him, you know, that allowed him, I, I, I have to think of it esoterically and, and from this really high-level philosophic perspective that that was allowing the roadblocks to be taken away so he could be a whole person and do the work of living uh, and preparing for dying, which is, while I've never done it, I imagine death is a letting go of everything. So our job is to translate reality, prepare someone as best we can, advocate, walk the journey, Give them every opportunity to do the work of that time. And it was about 24 to 36 hours with this particular gentleman that he was able to do that work. The medication did not take his life. Vital signs were stable. He just came to a place where I think that oneness could be achieved and he could accomplish what's going to be natural and and inevitable for all of us. Does that make sense? Well, I cannot answer yes or no uh, at this moment. I, I think this is just... This requires way much, you know, thinking and perhaps even uh, going to, to similar experiences that you, can, that you can really assess this and say, yeah, it's, it does or it doesn't. For sure, there, is, uh, there are times and places in your life where it's, it's not just purely physical, but something more, you know, psychologically Again, I don't want to be esoteric either, but something is going on where you push yourself into places um, or get yourself back from them. Um, but I'm very grateful for what you said. Um, you started talking about family and friends, relatives, colleagues, and so on. Mm-hmm. And I, I immediately had to think about um, one of the probably most beautiful things that a person said about death when he was asked what happens after death, right? So it's Keanu Reeves, by the way on one of the late night shows, um, he said, I think that those who love us are going to miss us. And this made me think about, well, dying is already very hard for the individual. Um, And we already unpacked quite a lot, you and I, right now. But 
what does it do with the rest of the people who you know are invested in you who who love you uh be it family friends doesn't matter um how can people like you um and healthcare help them um go through this phase and what role exactly do you think does hope uh play in all this beautiful question i think hope uh is eternal <laughs> um And it's a journey that we are on as a community, right? whether that community is large or small, family, friends. And, and our role as human beings, again, is to acknowledge the reality of life and to frame what it is we hope many colleagues will say. Well, I don't want to tell them, I can't tell them the truth because I don't want to steal their hope. Well, I challenge uh, the moral responsibility uh, that 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 lacks because what do they hope for without the truth you can't have uh you can't hope you need you need the truth to, to to accurately hope for whatever it is well i don't want them to stop fighting well again in the same vein i believe we always fight every breath we fight for what's sacred to us but we have to define what we're fighting for and that's grounded in truth and it's the same conversation with patients and families and the patient's families It's very interesting because uh, every patient every patient I've had, while it may not be an easy conversation, their little voice, there's something inside of them that says, I, yeah, I know this. And so it's not caustic to them. To family members, it can be an egregious conversation. And so we have to come back to saying, okay, why is it? And again, it's, it's fear, fear of loss, fear of grieving, fear of pain for their loved ones themselves. And so we acknowledge and recognize what the genesis of that antagonism is, if you will. And we embrace it and say, I, I honor that you're very angry. You don't want to hear this. But let's, again, reframe the narrative and let's say this is a reality. So let's focus on living. What are the things that are sacred to you in that relationship with the individual? And let's act on that. Let's empower everybody. And I think two words you said, this conversation with family with the exception of a handful of people throughout the years, okay, um, is as liberating and presents them with as much autonomy to live their lives as it does the individual. Mm -hmm. And so then they can collectively walk this human journey. And at the end of the day, if, if, if this path is not ascribed to, we don't lead like this. We see too often it comes to the last hours or days and again, The system potentiates the physician saying there's nothing else I can do for you. There's an overwhelming sense of abandonment and absolute fear. And as though my life has been stolen from me because as a patient and even family members, this little voice has been screaming inevitability and the truth. It didn't have the language to say it's a, it's a metastatic medullary thyroid cancer. It's just something's different. And I hope I'm here through Christmas. When we don't put those two things together, patients say, wow, I was supposed to trust you, a long white coat. You're altruistically supposed to have my best interest at hand. And you kept from me the truth. You stole from me choice. You stole from me my life. And so you have to deal oftentimes with very bitter, angry, resentful people because of what we do to them instead of with them and for them. And it applies the same for the family. 
Tim, all this is so deep. I almost don't want to go into lighter uh, part of this topic. <laughs> and, and when I say light, I only mean because we would go from the, um, you know, this beautiful philosophical uh, content into more formal uh, things, you know, numbers, data. Um, but I was also interested in the U.S., um, who are the patients, you know, number-wise, who are mostly um, admitted into palliative care? So, for example, in Switzerland, it's mostly oncological cases. Um, I don't know how it's for you guys. And then the second thing, um, which is actually a big political discussion right now here in Switzerland, is who pays for that, right? Um, mm. That's the, the question, who pays for, for all the care and um, how can this care basically be improved over the years? Um, you know, Switzerland does not have such a long history in palliative care compared, for example, to the UK, where there are like 30 years on it. So I would like to know a little bit about the, the US system. So much like Switzerland, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the United States is in its um, pre-adolescence of palliative care. Um, you know, we're, we're able to walk upright, but we still bump into the furniture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In that context, uh, there's been discordant understanding, even within the field, uh, of what it is, can, and should be. And that discordance in the healthcare system in the United States that, that really follows this linear algorithm uh, really precludes <clears throat> moving beyond um, months of life expectancy for engagement of, of palliative care. You know, ideally, I, I look at it, and some colleagues look at palliative care as should be an intervention you know, from diagnosis with aggressive and curative treatment and, and through the entirety of the journey. Uh, unfortunately, it is more often than not come in, clean up the mess, get them off our payroll um, because they are dying or actively dying and get them onto a hospice service, you know, for the actual last days, weeks, or a few months of their life. The population served, uh, I think, tends to be, it, the oncologic population is increasing but it's still very, very downstream, too late. We, we've exhausted everything we can do. Mm -hmm. They're dying. I don't want to say that, so let's just consult palliative care because it's the easy button. I don't have to say death, dying, hospice, those things. So we experience that more often than not. Um, as far as numbers, uh, I would offer in a good health system, uh, a system with a really quality, good palliative care program, you may capture uh, three to five percent of that population, uh, and we know at least in this country, fifteen percent of the population. If we're talking about data, fifteen percent of the people who are dealing with advancing illness utilize eighty-five percent of our healthcare dollar in the United States, which is just under three trillion dollars annually. And so we know that a majority of those people, uh, all the things that get done to them, neither rarely extend their life, uh, and even more rarely increase the quality of their life. So if you want to talk about value, and I, I would say there's a big question mark as far as all these things that get done to people, what the real value to the human being is. We know that if we take a true palliative approach, concurrently with aggressive therapy or not, and we move it upstream, we have time and time again studies are demonstrating reproducible positive outcomes. My work over many years, you know, we had the highest patient satisfaction rate, I think almost in the country not just palliative care, but in the country. Uh, again, all ages, all diseases, and we started very far upstream, several years life expectancy. Um, we had the highest patient satisfaction. 
Uh, we had people living longer than the median expectancy if they were just engaged in, in, in clinical entities, in traditional clinical entities. Um, we have to talk economics. I mean, it's, it's, it's a reality. We know, as I had said, 15% takes up 85% of the healthcare dollar here in the U.S. Uh, by practicing true palliative care, uh, we reduced hospitalizations by upwards of 95%. Not because people couldn't go, but proactively caring for them uh, and leading with the truth, there was no need to go. We took care of everything proactively and at home. And then we cut the spend. People are living better and longer. And we decreased the per capita expenditure by 70, 70%. So we're talking a small sliver of the population. Provider satisfaction was increased. Patient satisfaction, family and caregivers, we were the highest rated program most likely to be recommended to others by family and caregivers. So we're not stealing hope. We're empowering. It's, it's empowering autonomy. It's empowering living. Who pays for it? That was, your, that was part of your question. The U.S. model is a fee-for-service model. So if I do a procedure, if I do something in the realm of healthcare, if someone has government-backed insurance, Medicare, if I do something, I'm guaranteed a reimbursement. So I'm guaranteed a reimbursement whether that something was warranted or needed, whether the was good, bad, or indifferent, whether I, I did it to you yesterday, I'm going to do it to you again tomorrow. So there's a, a bastardized incentive program to do things to people, regardless of outcome. Upstream of the age of 65, which is really when Medicare government uh, socialized medicine is called exactly what it is, uh, your private insurance companies more and more are starting to offer some reimbursement for palliative services, but it's not across the healthcare continuum. So you can get some palliative in the hospital, getting reasonable reimbursements to deliver palliative care outside of the hospital, whether it's a long-term care facility, nursing home, or in the patient's home themselves, uh, exists, but it's to a smaller degree and there's fewer opportunities uh, to get in, in reimbursements from payers. So the, the tide is changing. We are seeing a lot of um, discussion at the policy level that healthcare needs to, to be changed. My question still is, how do we do that? Uh, how do we pay for it? And I always come back and say, if we think about it, not as healthcare reform, but reforming how we care and we integrate everything we've been talking about, mm -hmm. Just for advancing illness, right? But for everybody, every human being, we see people live longer and better and we can cut the spend by 70%. That is the absolute answer. And that's how we can pay not just for healthcare, but we know that the 15% right now of the population that takes up $3 trillion, mm -hmm. that's nearly 20% of the United States' gross domestic product. We see how many people are aging just in the United States alone. The past half decade, 10,000 per day and have fallen into this sandbox. And that's not stopping anytime soon. If you follow the slope of the line of number of people that are requiring care in the last chapters of their life and the expense of the current system, projected that it will be 60 plus percent of the gross domestic product of the United States in the next two decades. At that point, the conversation ceases to be about healthcare. It's global economics. So the uh, this is the fulcrum. I truly believe there are there are many things that need, need to be addressed globally. But this is a fulcrum upon which everything we understand 
in the United States, uh, and I think globally, it's a fulcrum upon which everything rests. We've got to figure out how to care and how to be a community, and I think the rest is going to take care of itself. First of all, impressive numbers. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very nice to see that um, when, it's, when the care is done correctly, it actually brings wonderful fruits, um, also economically, so for the people who, you know, like the the hard science stuff and actually want want to see the number at the end of the year, they would right. be happy to hear this too. We have talked about um, the patients and, and what they're going through. We talked a little bit about the system. Now, I would like your opinion about the following. Um, you know, during my experience with people who work in, in palliative care, when I was at the lectures, was at the uh, uh, was one of the um, lecturers for for psycho oncology as well um, in um, in a city here in Switzerland. I realized that um, people who work in palliative care, doctors especially, um, have a certain <laughs> pattern of of personality traits and the way they talk, the way they you know carry themselves. There is something unbelievably peaceful. Um, and calm radiating from them. And I don't know if it's, it, it's just me who, who uh, thinks that this is a precondition for somebody to, <laughs> to go into the palliative care or uh, if, if this comes with the job. So in other, in other words, do you think that there is a special type um, or do you need to be a, a certain type of a person to work in this field and, um, you know, well, be good at it, right? So that's, uh, that's another wonderful question. I only um, have those. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and if uh, you're inferring that I, I, at some level, come across being peaceful and calm, I would, uh, I would encourage you to call my wife, and, and she may say otherwise. <laughs> um, not, I mean, not that I'm not peaceful and calm, but um, I, I think it is. Uh, I think there's a certain personality that is able to be in this space. And conversely... You know, to be a neurosurgeon, right, it takes a certain personality. You would not want me to clip your fingernails, okay, let alone do neurosurgery on you, right? And so I, I think it's not unique to palliative. I think there are personality traits and skill sets uh, that align people with particular spaces in healthcare. I would offer where we need to evolve to as, as a society and, and as a uh, system of care is the recognition, again, of this inevitability and, and that there is a time in every health journey, every physiologic journey that beyond which uh, the body slows down. Some people say it's just mother nature. You've turned the proverbial corner. But there is uh, this time at which the body starts to slow down and doesn't heal or, or as quickly or respond as appropriately as it might have prior to this time. And that that diminishing return, if you will. It crescendos. And, and this is the why people die. It's physiologically, things slow down. And within that period, which is physiologic, not chronologic, because right? again, I've had five-year-olds I've cared for, mm -hmm. uh, and I've had 105-year-olds. Within this physiologic inflection period, if you will, there is yet another breakpoint where the things that get done to someone from a clinical perspective not only cease to do good, they actually cause harm. And so we're potentiating the decline of the human being because the body can't respond and we're actually harming them. This, the, the intended positive influence 
becomes a negative stress and and we cause more pain and more suffering and and we maybe bring that proverbial line in the sand that is death closer so just as i in practicing medicine if if someone comes in and they've been in an automobile accident and we get a cat scan of their head and i see that there's a big bleed inside inside the head and it's it's shifting the brain to one size I, I can recognize I need to call my colleagues who have the skill set mentality to understand what all the options are. So that would be our neuro- neurosurgeons. I think what's lacking, and this is not meant to be egregious to any one individual, it's manifest from society and the way we are educated and the system that potentiates how we practice, right? What What's needed is all those other subspecialties to recognize when it's time to call a palliative physician. Mm-hmm. When someone has come into this proverbial inflection period, let's start to have conversations based in truth and reality. This population, if we tie it right back to numbers and data and economics. In this country, we have uh, accountable care organization. It's a, it's a term that came from the Dartmouth Institute of Health. Dartmouth University. And the goal is to transition f- towards value, healthcare that has real value and positive outcomes. And a positive outcome does not necessarily mean beating death. Positive outcome to me is did you lead with the truth and guide someone all the way? Mm-hmm. That's a positive outcome. From a health system perspective, accountable care is how do we mitigate financial loss, just to be very honest. So what's wrong with healthcare? It doesn't care. It's about the money. The aggregate per capita reduction in expenditure for all accountable care organizations in the United States last year was 1.25%. Against $3 trillion, that's not going to do it. And so I was in a meeting in Washington, D.C. last year with this collection of, of, of systems, and I challenged us. I said, you all look at the advancing illness, which is primarily elderly, as being elderly and ill, and that's what costs you money. And that's the question you're trying to answer and the problem you're trying to solve. The elderly who are ill don't cost you a penny. It's what you do to them, which we know provides very little value to extending their life overall and even less value in increasing the quality of their life. So again, we have to acknowledge the reality. We have to accept it. We have to have all our colleagues accept it. We have to embrace each other, have conversations about it. That's how it changed. So yes, there are distinct personality types. We need to learn uh, to be a community of care, whole person care together, or we might not have the chance. If if it becomes 60% of the GDP, things would change dramatically. Thank you, Tim. I would uh, take the liberty now to dive little back to the deep, deep waters with uh, a topic which I was thinking about for a while now. Um, I think maybe a few months ago, I was talking to a representative um, of an association which is sending, um, well, let's call them uh, clowns. Well, they, they call them dream doctors into children's hospitals, you know, to cheer up the kids um, mm-hmm. in, in um, each of the departments. Um, there has been also some studies running that it actually, um, you know, helps, uh, with, with the curing process and it, uh, you know, it alleviates pain sometimes, um, brings good atmosphere and so on. I don't know, you know, what way, um, what else it, it actually clinically does that can be empirically funded. Mm-hmm. Now, my question to you would be, what do you think 
from all your experience and everything you have done so far, um, can humor <laughs> be implemented in palliative care? And if so, how would that go? I love that question more than any of the others. Really? Um, okay. <laughs> Scrap the whole stuff. <laughs> um, I mean, life at some level is very absurd and just funny. If we preclude looking at it through that lens, then we, we cease to live in our fullest capacity. You know, some of the most hilarious guttural laughter I've had is, is with palliative patients and even, you know, hospice patients actively dying, not at anything's expense, but just caring and living and being open to living. Again, it goes back, if, if we're paralyzed with fear, there is no humor. We can't laugh. If we're living life, and if we're living life, embracing ambiguity, and, and just in that moment. So think of those times in our lives that have just been fabulous. We gave in, accepted the ambiguity at a subconscious level. We just existed and we went through our day and it was fabulous. And we laughed and we allowed that freedom and that interaction, that energy uh, to, to manifest from inside each other and, and to respond to each other in an improvisational manner. This conversation is, is there's questions, but we're not calculating response. We're just being and we're chatting. <clears throat> that's when the humor comes out and you can intentionally, you know, tell jokes and be funny and, and silly and stupid, um, to elicit that. Um, absolutely. Life is funny, not to take away from grief and, and sadness and, and, but we have to allow ourselves to laugh. And I've seen more of that in, in the field that I practice than any other field. And so, yeah, um, we need to make each other's laugh. We, we need not be afraid of laughing at ourselves and uh, and each other. Not in a caustic, I'm making fun of you way, but right? You're reminding me of a story, if we have a moment. Um, matriarch of a family, she was in her 90s, and so there were you know four or five generations of people in the room, and we'd walk this journey through palliative, and, and she was within hours of days of dying, we're in the home, people are gathered around, there's this this emotional fervor that's building as, as um, as, as we move forward in time, um, I would make home visits and I would stay and I'd spend the night and, you know, whatever was needed. And we were at this point where she had been relatively uh, non-communicative, mm -hmm. doing that work, right, of letting go of everything. And then all of a sudden, after about two days, she mumbles something and everybody gets close and she says, the light. And they're like, Grandma, Mom, what is it? She goes, the light. The light, and I, I am this absolute truth. And so this fervor builds, and mom, go to the light. It's okay. You can embrace the light. Walk to the light. And then she opens her eyes and she says, "That light is shining on me. Will you shut it off?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just erupted tears of laughter and joy. And someone say the absurdity of that moment, but it was it was so much about living. And she just, killed it. I mean, she was in the, you know, she was in the pragmatic mindset of shut the hell uh, down. You know, I mean, like I want to sleep, and and, and, and everybody else was some somewhere completely else. You know, they thought, oh, go, go to the light. You know, enter God's garden, whatnot. Yeah. wonderful. It was fantastic. So, so humor is so important. This was really a a story that uh, how do they say it? Uh, only life can write stories like this, right? You cannot, you would not come up with with things like this. It was a Beautiful anecdote. Thank you very much, Tim. Oh, thank you for allowing me to share. Tim, I want to thank you for, again, taking your time, you know, talking um, 
about all this really complex and deep-rooted stuff, um, I think our listeners will have to sit down for this one. Uh, <laughs> and maybe even afterwards, you know, take, take a moment or two. But I appreciate it a lot. Thank you again. I thank you so much. And I would encourage you and anyone else that uh, if they'd like to continue the conversation, um, I am more than happy to engage, um, to be challenged, to question. You know, again, it is about connecting to a broader sense of the human condition beyond my own. And we need to collectively elevate the narrative of what it means to care. Uh, and so I'm sincere when I say I welcome uh, anyone to reach out. And uh, I thank you again and I wish you peace. This was the voice of medicine. Make sure you tune in next time and take care. <laughs>